Health Voice, Episode 69, HPV Vaccines. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. Who should be vaccinated against HPV and why? Regay King from the American Cancer Society joined me to discuss the benefits of HPV prevention. Well, welcome, Regay. Thank you, Beth. Nice to be with you. I'm so glad to have you here. And I want to ask, how did you first become interested in population health issues and cancer in particular? Well, it started really intentionally um, with my career at the American Cancer Society. I've been with the American Cancer Society 30 years, and I first um, began my work with the ACS on a prevention study looking at preventing colorectal cancer in individuals that had um, adenomatous polyps, which are precursors uh, to colon cancer. So the, the idea of being able to step in and perhaps prevent um, something like colon cancer was very intriguing. And um, that, that was my first taste of population health. And um, I've come full circle 30 years later. We're still working on colorectal cancer, but then, you know, also exciting areas like HPV vaccination uptake, uh, which is an area with, with such potential as far as cancer prevention. And you have a history with Virginia Rural Health Association as you are one of our former board members. Yes, that is correct. Back uh, 2008-2009 time frame, I, how quickly time flies. Why do you think it's important for organizations such as the American Cancer Society to form partnerships with entities that focus on rural health? Well, I, I often feel that a lot of attention is given to urban areas where most of the population is centered. However, um, we've learned, uh, you know, the hard way um, that in rural communities, access still continues to be one of the biggest problems. And so while the population may be smaller, um, the, the, the needs are greater and the barriers are greater. So if we don't make a difference in rural communities, we're not addressing, uh, we're not we're not dealing with population health because population is everyone, not just the urban and suburban areas of our state. What do people in rural communities need to know about the American Cancer Society? So the American Cancer Society is an organization that's been around for over 100 years. Um, we pride ourselves on being a uh, good resource for accurate information as far as cancer, the entire continuum. So from prevention, which is um, lifestyle changes in prevention, all the way through survivorship. So it's an organization that um, takes its resources and um, utilizes them to the best of their ability in the area of prevention, early detection, um, treatment, survivorship. And then one of the areas that we um, have been focused on even before the federal government is research. Um, the federal government really got into funding research much later than the American Cancer Society. We started in the early 40s. 
um, where we started raising uh, donor dollars and started looking at what some of the um, what was happening in cancer and trying to figure out why. Um, so that's just a little snapshot of the organization. But we also pride ourselves uh, on providing accurate information. Um, we're available 24-7 via our um, 1-800 number, and that is 1-800-ACS-2345. Um, and we are able to provide that information in many languages. Um, we have bilingual staff in Spanish, but we also have translation services for hundreds of languages beyond that. Great. And we'll make sure we get that phone number in the show notes so people can look that up if they need it. Thank you. Currently with ACS, you are the Senior Director, Cancer Control Strategic Partnerships, what does all that really mean? What do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? <laughs> so um, back in 2013, on purpose, um, my organization chose to start working with large health systems. So in cancer control, we work specifically with a Commission on Cancer Accredited Hospitals throughout the state. We have over 40 in Virginia. Uh, federally qualified health centers, which are centers that are located many times in rural communities and are some of the only um, places for uh, clinical care in the state, and then health plans. So health plans, the reason there is that for people that are insured, we are trying to work with health plans to ensure that um, coverage is available, especially for the areas that we feel the most passionate about. Um, another area of focus for us, too, is to continue our work with state-based organizations. Um, here in Virginia, the Cancer Action Coalition of Virginia is the Comp Cancer Coalition for the state. Um, we have an active role there. And um, just being able to really focus on specific areas of need. So I've mentioned prevention, um, but also when it comes to patients being diagnosed, we also want to be able to provide services to those patients. Unfortunately, the pandemic has uh, limited our ability to assist in um, uh, many communities across the United States. We've had to shut down some of those um, volunteer-based programs that we have. But I'm happy to report that um, we kicked off um, our transportation program in the Virginia Beach area most recently, um, and we're looking to add on more uh, sites as, as we can uh, get through this pandemic a little bit quicker, hopefully. And we've had several interviews in this podcast about vaccine hesitancy, but we've mostly been talking about COVID. What vaccine are you trying to promote? Uh, the HPV vaccination for adolescents. Um, this is a vaccine that it can help uh, prevent six uh, human papilloma virus related cancers. So the benefit that you see is not something you'll see right away. It's 20 to 30 years down the line. But in focusing on vaccinating adolescents uh, anywhere between the ages of 9 and 13, you can, in fact, um, limit the number of um, cancers, HPV-related cancers, down the road. Um, 
So here in the United States, while cervical cancer has uh, has greatly decreased thanks to screening, um, it still impacts over 31,000 individuals um, annually in the United States, and we lose 4,000 individuals to some form of cervical cancer. The HPV vaccination would um, prevent that cancer from ever getting started. So beginning with um, young women uh, as early as nine and and getting them through um, the two-dose vaccination would help keep them safe down the road. Um, And of course, we want boys too. I, I think, unfortunately, when we introduced HPV vaccination, we only introduced it Uh, as something for young women and it really is available it is available for both females and males and equally important for both um, to have so explain that more if hpv leads to cervical cancer why do boys need the vaccine Exactly. So um, they can still transmit the virus. So it becomes important for boys to be vaccinated against the virus as well. Uh, For many of us, for most of us, um, we are exposed to the HPV virus in the course of our lifetime. However, most of us clear it and don't ever know that we have it, but there's a small percentage that do not. So it's an equal opportunity offender, so it's important that both boys and girls are vaccinated. What are some concerns or barriers around the vaccine? Um, I think um, I've been, as I shared with the organization, 30 years, and in just a short period of time, um, in about a decade, the vaccine hesitancy movement has grown um, well beyond what I thought was possible. Um, And I do think that it's important to help people understand that introducing um, a vaccine at, at, at nine to 13 years of age for both boys and girls allows their immune system to protect themselves from the human papilloma virus. It's um, been proven to be effective in countries where you have high vaccination rates, like Australia. Uh, You're already seeing a decline in those HPV-related cancers. So in a short period of time, you can start to see an impact. Um, I think in this country, if we can help both parents and clinicians understand the importance of preventing cancer down the road, we can um, encourage them to to take on the vaccination and have their children vaccinated and as clinicians make sure that their patients are vaccinated too. Mm-hmm. And thinking more about the need for for everyone to get the vaccine regardless of gender and thinking back you know when I was in high school and this is totally dating myself HIV was first breaking into national awareness, whereas before it was only thought to affect a small subset of the population. I have a memory of my entire high school class being briefed on HIV, and something that permeated my 17-year-old brain was that it wasn't just about who I might have sex with, but it was also about the people that that person might have sex with. Is, is HPV sort of the same issue that it doesn't matter how careful I am if the person I'm with isn't careful as well? 
That's correct. That's that. Um, you know, if we were, if we all lived in bubbles and didn't interact with one another at all, um, yes, you wouldn't have to worry. But that's not what life is. It is a. There are interactions um, all along that lifespan, and you just want to be able to say that you've provided your child with a shield for that future interaction. Well, and I've heard, you know, some criticism that, you know, we shouldn't be giving HPV to, to teens because it, it giving them permission to have promiscuous sex. But, you know, saying that you, you're expecting your teen to not ever, ever make a mistake, that seems like a bit much to me. Yeah, I, I agree, Beth. And, you know, I, I think um, the... The idea that your, you know, your children are not going to engage in sexual behavior ever in their lifetime is just, it's not reasonable. And and to think that, you know, in getting them protected against a um, transmissible virus somehow gives them, you know, um, the ability to just go out and do whatever they want. I I think it's kind of underestimating our, our, our youth. Um, I, I think that uh, we protect ourselves against many things. You know, you think about a baby when they're what uh, born, they get a hepatitis vaccine. One of the ways that you get hepatitis is through um, sexual contact, but there's no there's no qualms in giving that baby <laughs> the hepatitis vaccine. And here we're talking about, you know, nine years to thirteen years later giving them a vaccine, a, a two-part series vaccine that, that would help protect them against six HPV-related cancers. Um, I, to me, it, you know, it just seems, I, I always believe in, in prevention over treatment. And if you think about um, what treatment entails uh, once someone has a cancer, it's just, it just seems illogical to not prevent with two vaccines versus, you know, going through treatment. And some of the oropharyngeal um, HPV cancers that um, adults go through are very unpleasant as far as treatment and very debilitating and can be um, life-altering as far as disfigurement. So it just, just makes sense to help prevent something that you could, you know, avoid later in life. And it's cheaper that way, too. Yes. Oh, my gosh, yes. Uh, very much so. But, you know, it was a Benjamin Franklin that said an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We, we tend to forget that um, a lot of times. If someone wanted more information about the HPV vaccine, what resources would you recommend? So the American Cancer Society founded the HPV vaccination roundtable. So I, I recommend going there. Um, first and foremost, because it has a, a plethora of information and it's geared towards different audiences. So if you're a parent and you're seeking information, there's information that's geared towards parents. If you're a clinician, a pediatrician, a dentist, um, anyone that might touch uh, an adolescent or a, 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 a child uh, somewhere in the course of their lifetime, they can um, get some information on how they can help too. 
and for organizations like hospital systems that may want to look at increasing HPV vaccination rates within their integrated delivery network, there's information there. So um, really good resource. There's also information that's been shared where best practices have been implemented um, with organizations and they've shared what they've learned. Um, and we are always uh, behind the use of evidence-based interventions in improving vaccination rates, both getting people to get started with vaccines and then also completing the series because it is important. It is two vaccines. So yes, it's wonderful to get the one, but you need the second one too. That's equally as important in ensuring that you're covered against the HPV. If a student is considering a career in public health related to cancer, what advice would you have that person? Oh my gosh, that's, first of all, um, that is so exciting because I think right now um, there's so much opportunity in um, the continuum of cancer. It comes down to, you know, where where do you want to plug in? Do you want to plug in um, in prevention? And that's not just vaccinations, but also behavior and lifestyle. You know, um, how can we help people to give up smoking or the use of tobacco products? How can we encourage people to look at diets and not so much taking away from their diet, but adding to as far as um, fruits and vegetables and and good sources of protein and that kind of thing? Um, And then, you know, early detection, that's, um, you know, we have screening that works and that is successful. What can we do there um, in, in the public health Uh, arena to ensure that people are taking advantage of many of the benefits they may have if they're um, if they have health insurance and when they don't have health insurance how can we um, make sure that people are getting to resources that will help them and then um, you go into treatment and treatment right now is an exciting field Um, there's a lot that's been discovered um, most recently in the last decade since the sequencing of the genome and how that has led to some targeted therapies for specific cancers. And then survivorship is an area, you know, we have over 17 million survivors in the United States. Um, How can we help um, that segment of our population stay healthy and avoid um, either a recurrence of their cancer or a new cancer? And then, um, you know, the other area of interest, too, in in cancer is specifically uh, around pediatric cancer. We've made incredible inroads as far as pediatric cancer from the 1920s, but there's still so much room for improvement, and um, uh, that's another area of of focus as far as uh, public health, too. And last question, question I ask all my guests, if you could do anything what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? Oh, my gosh, Beth. Um, access, I, I think, um, you know, we are lucky in the state that we expanded Medicaid, which has helped many um, uninsured Virginians. But we still have so many that don't qualify for Medicaid. So I think improving access, and I do think that that takes collaboration. It takes collaboration between the health systems um, in, in Virginia and uh, making sure that that safety net is truly collaborating in the sense that if you start out at a free clinic 
or a federally qualified health center that you have a pathway um, to care. So in, in my area of cancer, if you start out with a screening, a free screening at a free clinic, um, and you need further uh, care that there's a health system that will make sure that you know you don't fall through the cracks and you have the follow-up that you need and, and heaven forbid if that should mean treatment that there's a place that you can go for treatment so um, uh, that's that, that's my wish <laughs> love to see it come to fruition I think that sounds like a great wish well thank you for joining me today Regay. Thank you, Beth. This was a pleasure as always. That's Regay King advocating for improved access to health care through collaboration. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, join the VRHA leadership at the National Rural Health Association's Policy Institute in February. This is your chance to meet with rural health leaders from across the nation and talk directly with members of Congress and their staff. Event links are in the show notes. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.